All right, so last week we started this. I, I'm glad to see you've come back. So way to go. You didn't get scared off by Lamentations 1. Uh, this is a short book. This is a, only five chapters, so we're into chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in it for a few more weeks, and then we'll move on to uh, other things, hopefully happier things. Um, but this book uh, is a unique book in the, in the scriptures because it's, uh, it's poetic, it's poetry, much like the Psalms is poetry and portions of the book of Job and some other places as well. Uh, but this is all poetry centered around a massive event in the history of Israel, which is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Uh, so much of the Old Testament talks about this event because it was such a huge, crucial thing in their history. Um, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah came, uh, it, not entirely, but largely to preach uh, to re- for repentance so that this would not happen. The people of Israel did not respond to that in the way they were called to. Um, but ultimately, this was God's plan and God's hand uh, to get them where he wanted them to be. But it's a it was a devastating thing. It wasn't like, I mean, we, we can kind of read this a little bit in a sterilized environment, right? Because we're so far removed from it and we're just reading about it either in the history books of the Old Testament or in Lamentations. And But we got to recognize that this, is, this happened and it, it, a lot of people were hurt in this process. A lot of people were killed. Um, there was a, this was a brutal thing. And I don't know that we necessarily fully can wrap our heads around this. But what's astounding in this whole thing is how much uh, the suffering of people comes into light through this book. And, and so while we're talking about a very specific event in, that, in the history of Israel, it does speak to I think all of human suffering to some degree at least helps to give us some words for that. Um, and, and it certainly points us to the redemptive work of Christ, even if it's not clear on the, on the surface. It does show us the, the broader plan of God as well. So um, we're going to talk a lot about suffering and those kind of things over the next few weeks. But I tried to make it clear last week. I don't know if I did, but I tried uh, to make it clear that there are a variety of reasons that the scriptures give us for why suffering happens to people. Okay, there's not just one reason. But in this book, there, there is one reason why this is happening. And that is because of the unrepentant sin of the nation of Israel. That, that's why this is happening to them. And, and so that's not always the case for you and me. Uh, obviously, we have a different thing going than the nation of Israel in the Old Testament did. But we also have, have to recognize that sometimes our sin is what leads us to suffering. We talked about that last week. But there are other reasons why suffering can happen. And it could be to get our attention to the things of God. It could be uh, to just simply discipline us in one way or another. Or it could just be um, because someone does something sinful and we kind of get caught in the fallout of that, right? Like there's a lot of things that, that can happen that leads to suffering. However, this book is clear that sin does lead to suffering and in, in a sense, there's a, there's a passage in the book of Hebrews that talks about how God disciplines those he loves. And as hard as it is to believe, God's discipline on his people is because of love, because he loves us too much to leave us in our rebellion 
and our sin. And C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, if you've never read that, it's a short book. It's kind of an apologetic work of how to explain the, the, the problem, the issue of, of suffering and pain in the world and how God fits into that. And it's a really good book. But there's a famous quote out of that, that where, where Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone. Pain is his megaphone or his bullhorn to rouse a deaf world. And he says, no doubt, pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It, it may lead even to final unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the sinner can have for change. It removes the veil. It plants a flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. So Lewis's point is this, that suffering, as, as hard as it is, as unpleasant as it is, is God's way of shaking us out of our apathy and, and hopefully drawing us to repentance. And so I think that helps a little bit put into perspective what God may be doing in, in this, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's still brutal. And I think in chapter two, of all the chapters, I think chapter two is actually the darkest. Uh, so welcome to church again, guys. Uh, this, is a, this, is, this is dark, right? This is gonna be really heavy. There's a lot here. Uh, as we get into next week, there is some glimmer of hope that actually shows up, which is, uh, which is good. And we'll get there when we get there next week. But today, um, is, uh, it's going to be dark. So I'm just going to give you some fair warning. And then we'll, we'll go see how it fits with Jesus. That's what we're here to do, ultimately. Okay, so Lamentations 2, verse uh, 1 through 10. Uh, that's what we're going to read. We're going to read these 10 verses, then we'll kind of back up and talk a little about them. It says, How the Lord has overshadowed daughter Zion with his anger. He has thrown down Israel's glory from heaven to earth. He did not acknowledge his footstool in the day of his anger. Without compassion, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has demolished the fortified cities of daughter Judah. He brought them to the ground and defiled the kingdom and its leaders. He has cut off every horn of Israel in his burning anger and withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything. He has strung his bow like an enemy. His right hand is positioned like an adversary. He has killed everyone who was the, the, uh, the delight to his eye, pouring out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all its palaces and destroyed its fortified cities. He has multiplied mourning and lamentations within daughter Judah. He has wrecked his temple as if it were merely a shack in a field destroying his place of meeting. The Lord has abolished 
appointed festivals and Sabbaths in Zion. He has despised kings and priests, a king and priest in his fierce anger. The Lord has rejected his altar, repudiated his sanctuary. He has handed the walls of her palaces over to the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not restrain himself from destroying. He made the ramparts and walls grieve. Together they waste away. Zion's gates have fallen to the ground. He has destroyed and shattered the bars of her gates. Her king and her leaders live among the nations. Instruction is no more. And even her prophets receive no vision from the Lord. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads and put sackcloth, put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Okay, so this is poetic language, right? This is, a, this is poetry. We said last week that all, all but the last poem in this book uh, is an acrostic, meaning it's an alphabet poem. It's, it goes through the, the 22 uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and each stanza starts with the next letter, right? And so this is obviously speaking poetically in poetic language, but here's the thing that it's saying. It's saying something shocking. Actually, it really is shocking, especially, I think, in our modern evangelical uh, you know, system of belief and thinking and uh, what so many of us have just kind of been led to believe. It's shocking because God was directly involved in Jerusalem's destruction. Like he wasn't just allowing it, he did it. And that's, that's crazy to us, right? I mean, that's, that's shocking. The Babylonians obviously were the ones that actually physically came in and, and took over the city, killed a bunch of people, hauled away a bunch of others, um, left the rest to die. Like, the Babylonians did this, but the Babylonians are not blamed for this, right? They're not, they're not really mentioned in here at all, except maybe alluded to in uh, one of the verses about you know, how the enemy, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, there, there's not a whole lot here. I mean, God is literally called the enemy in verse 5. And, and so God is the one who did this. God is the one who's to blame, I guess you can say, if that's, that's probably not the right word, but, you know, God is the one who's being attributed to all of this work. You can't get around that. You just cannot get around that. The first nine verses, each and every one of them has verbs, action words, that are attributed to God directly. Let me just give you, let's go back through a few of these, right? Verse one again, it says, the Lord has overshadowed daughter Zion with his anger. And look at he who, the Lord, has thrown down Israel's glory from heaven to earth. The Lord threw it down. You can go to verse 2 and say, it says, that he, without compassion, the Lord swallowed up the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he demolished the fortified cities. There's another word, demolished, brought them to the ground. Verse 3, cut off every horn of Israel, withdrawn his right hand, blazed against Jacob. He has strung his bow like an enemy. Right? So, I mean, we could just keep going and going through this whole first nine verses. It's all attributing this to God. And 
I don't know that I have great answers for that, except to say perhaps that, you know, God is dealing with his people because of their unrepentant sin, right? And God is a God who's, he's just. These are not necessarily innocent uh, people. These are people who have rebelled against him as we all have as sinners. And so, you know, God's bringing about his wrath and justice upon the people. But that doesn't make it easier to stomach. Right? It's, this is a hard text. There's no question. This is a hard truth that God would be directly involved. And I think if you're sitting here and you're wondering to yourself, okay, how could this be? I thought God was a God of love. I thought God was friendly and nice. Um, and some of, the re- some of the reasons why people have over the years thought, okay, Old Testament God and New Testament God are not even the same because they're just, this is like mean Old Testament, cranky old man God, you know, and then you get to Jesus and he's super nice and friendly and he loves people and hugs babies and all that good stuff, right? But, but we have a God who is both love and justice, right? He's holy and loving. And so we've got to recognize that We've got to recognize that sin is the, the ultimate enemy and God is going to take care of that. But nonetheless, even though we may know that's true intellectually, we may not actually like it. And you might be sitting here thinking, how could God do this to these people? How could he do this? And if that's where you're at, you're in good company because that's where the text goes. That's, that's where this whole thing is kind of leading to. This is a a lamentation. This is just describing the sorrow of his people in the aftermath of what happened. And this is where they go. This is where Jeremiah takes the passage to question these things, to wonder how this could be. So let's look again at verse 9, excuse me, verse 10, and then we'll go from 10 through... um, Let's see, 17. This is the next section that we're going to look at. We'll we'll pick it back up in verse 10 again. It says, "The, The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads, put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are worn out from weeping. I'm churning within. My heart is poured out in grief because of the destruction of my dear people, because infants and nursing babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is the grain and wine? This is poetry. The babies aren't literally asking for wine, okay? Babies don't drink wine, Uh, but this is poetry, right? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life pours out in the arms of their mothers, What can I say on your behalf? What can I compare you to, daughter Jerusalem? What can I liken you to so that I may console you, virgin daughter Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets saw visions for you that were empty and deceptive. They did not reveal your iniquity and so restore your fortunes. They saw pronouncements for you that were empty and misleading. All who pass by scornfully clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? 
All your enemies open their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth, saying, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We have lived to see it. The Lord has done what he, had, what he planned. He has accomplished his decree, which he ordained in the days of old. He has demolished without compassion, letting the enemy gloat over you and exalting the horn of your adversaries. All right, so what are we dealing with here? Well, first we're seeing in the first ten, nine or ten verses, we're seeing that God was directly involved in the destruction of Jerusalem. And what we're seeing from here, verse 10 through 17, is just the, I mean, there's no better way to put it, but just the stunned shock of what has happened. The stunned shock of suffering that was being experienced by, by Jeremiah and by those who were left behind. You know, there's a phrase um, that says, you know, things are hard to stomach. And this is one of those truths that, it, that, are, that is hard to stomach. And literally to the point that that's where Jeremiah goes in verse 11. He says, my eyes are worn out from weeping. So he, he's got no tears left to cry. He's just, he's been weeping so much. And then it says, I'm churning within. In other words, his stomach is upset by what he's seeing. And then this translation says, my heart is poured out in grief. Um, the ESV, I prefer it because I think it gets more to the heart of what the Hebrew is saying here. Is, it says, my bile is poured out on the ground. So he's saying, I'm, I'm throwing up like because he's so upset by this. And and, and there's no food to be eaten. We've already saw that last week, that everybody's starving. So, and we're going to see that, of course, we already read a little bit more of that. And so there's no food to, to vomit out, right? So it's just bile. It's just, you, if you've ever had a stomach bug and you're, you know, throwing up constantly, there's nothing left after a while. It's just like, that's where Jeremiah is. Like, this is not a little thing. And then look at why he's, why is this the case? Why is his stomach upset? Why is he, uh, why is he pouring out? you know, in grief, it says, because of the destruction of my dear people, because infants and nursing babies faint in the streets of the city. Like, this is just horrific, right? And that's, what, that's what's literally being experienced is people starving to death. And there's just absolute stunned shock at this, as there should be. Right, this, this, just because this was like deserved, <laughs> even though it was their sin that led them here, it doesn't mean that we should be glib about it and go, well, they got what they deserve, so good on the, like, it, it's still heartbreaking and it should still lead us to mourn even when people get what they quote unquote deserve, right? And all of us, if anything happens to us because our sin everything we get, we really deserve, right? There are no good people and bad people. There's only bad people. Uh, and and so we we need to recognize that. But that doesn't mean we should, like, be glib about what's happening. And so you have this this absolute horror that he's experiencing. And all you have is really stunned silence that Jeremiah is putting words to. But that's where verse 10 says, right? It the elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have no words. And Jeremiah's writing these things in the aftermath as a poetic expression of this grief. 
And so he's, he's talking about all these, these little children dying in the arms of their mother. And uh, it's just horrible, right? That's why I said this is the darkest, I think, of all the, the poems in this book. In verse 13, he asks some hypothetical questions or um, rhetorical questions, I should say, where he says, what can I say on your behalf? Well, the answer is nothing, right? There's nothing to say. This is just horrific. What can I compare you to? What can I liken you to that I might console you? The answer is, well, nothing, right? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but we're, we're walking through their suffering right now. And then in verse uh, 15 and 16, uh, Jeremiah talks about not only the injury that was caused by the military destruction of their city, but then the, the insult that came after that. He says, all who pass by scornfully clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at daughter Zion and say, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth, saying, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We have lived to see it. So, so not only are they in destruction and destitution, and they're starving people in the streets, but the, the Babylonians are now looking on and laughing at the situation. Um, it's just absolute you know, crazy heartbreak. But again, just so we don't think that this was really ultimately the Babylonians, verse 17 says, the Lord has done it. He's done what he planned. He's accomplished his decree. And so we, we see, us, again, God's hand in this uh, repeated. Okay, now, as we get into the next verse, uh, two verses, 18 and 19, um, we're going to see the only glimmer of good here. Okay, the only thing that's maybe a little bit positive, but it's going to be short-lived. All right, so just buckle up. But look at verse 18 and 19. It says, The hearts of the people cry to the Lord. The wall of daughter Zion, let your, uh, wall of daughter Zion, let your tears run down like a river, day and night. Give yourself no relief and your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night, from the first watch of the night, pour out your heart like water before the, pres- before the Lord's presence. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who are fainting from hunger at the head of every street. So this is the only thing that we're told to do in response to this kind of suffering. The only thing we're told to do, the only response we really have is to cry out to the Lord which is kind of like ironic that the Lord's the one who did this and yet the Lord is also the only hope they have. Right now, again, we got to understand the context of why this is happening, right? This is happening because of their rebellion and their unrepentance and their unwillingness to turn to the Lord. And so that's obviously a uniqueness in this situation, but, but we got to recognize that what he, they're being called to do is to cry out to God for help. This is the only response they have. They're, they're told to have their hearts cry to the Lord, let their tears run down. God does not, uh, he's not embarrassed by your sorrow, by your tears, by your suffering. Let your tears run down like a river. 
And then it says in verse 19, to arise and cry out in the night. Um, Charles Spurgeon says that it's never too soon to pray. There's no reason to wait for the morning light. Right? That's what's being said here. Like, get up at night. Like, you don't have to wait till there's dawn on the horizon to go to God. You don't even have to see how this is all going to end before you go to him. And I think, guys, like, I, we don't want to make this overly too, like, okay, this is what it means for my, me. But I think the real practical thing here would be if, if you're in the midst of suffering, if you're in the midst of a, a confusing season in your life, all you really can do is pray. It really is. And, and that it's never too soon to start and it's never too late to start. We just need, we need to go to the Lord with these things. We need to be open and honest about our struggles with him and trust him to do something with this. And that's, that's kind of the, the call here for them is to respond by crying out to the very God who brought about the destruction, but nonetheless to go to him because he is their only hope. Now, if the passage ended there, we could maybe leave kind of happy, but we can't. So here we go. It's, this is crazy. Like, so, all right, let's read it, 20 through 22, and then we'll back up and talk about what we're seeing. Each poem, each of the five chapters is kind of a standalone thing. So this is where he ends this particular um, poem. He says, look, Lord, excuse me, Lord, look and consider to whom you have done this. Should women eat their own children, the infants they have nurtured? Should priests and prophets be killed in the Lord's sanctuary? Both young and old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without compassion. You summon those who terrorize me on every side as if for an appointed festival day on the day of the Lord's anger. No one escaped or survived. My enemy has destroyed those I nurtured and reared. So that's where the poem ends. Real happy, right? So what's happening here? I think this is actually really interesting and intentional. Of course it's intentional because it's God's word, but... I think there's something specific happening here. You're seeing the Lord's hand in their suffering. You're seeing their response, which is like just stunned silence. You're then seeing a call to go to God in prayer. And then the immediate thing that happens after that, which is we would expect Jeremiah to kind of land on, yeah, just go to the Lord. He loves you. Pray to him. He'll help you. But no, he, he transitions right out of that into questioning the goodness of God. That's literally what he's doing. It says, Lord, look and consider to whom you have done this. He's blaming God. In an, he's accusing God of not knowing or understanding what he's done. He's kind of going, God, I don't know that you're very good here because look at what you've done. You have, you have brought women to the point of starvation where they're contemplating cannibalism, like eating their own children. Like this is dark. 
And this is where they're at. Like they're starving in the streets. And so this is the state of Jerusalem in this point in time. And it is brutal. And he's asking God, should women eat their own children? Well, the obvious answer is no, they shouldn't, right? But, but what if you're in a destitute place and you have, like, you have to get to a really bad place for that to be even contemplated on the mind. And that's where they were. And then it says, should priests and prophets be killed in the Lord's sanctuary? Which is what happened when Babylon, Babylon came in. The priests and the prophets were killed in the, in the temple. He says, young people and old people are lying on the ground in the streets. They've fallen by the sword, right? You, and then he says, you've killed them in the day of your fierce anger. You've killed them, slaughtering without compassion. God is actually being accused here of not being good. And I said last week that the Bible is not shy about the cries of the confused. And that's what's happening. What I want you to understand is that God is secure enough to take your criticism. I'm not saying you should be in the darkest place and, you know, be constantly going at God and questioning his goodness. Of course not, right? But when we go through horrific suffering, suffering that makes no sense, whether that's national suffering like what they were going through or whether that's individual personal suffering that we may go through, there are, there are moments in that where it is easy for us to wonder whether God is good. And if you wonder that, you're in good company. And listen, if you wonder that, God is secure enough to handle that. He's not wringing his hands going, oh no, Tom doesn't like me today. He's not not insecure. He can handle my doubts and fears. He can handle yours too. I think that's why this poem is so incredibly helpful because we, we have to recognize that there are no easy answers to these things. Yes, there's a glimmer of here's what you can do, right? You can go to the Lord. You can pour out your heart before him. But sometimes that isn't enough to just button everything up and go, great, let's move on. No, sometimes even if we do that, we still are in a situation that we cannot comprehend. We cannot understand God's plan. We don't get it. And we might intellectually know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But that is, that's a terrible counselor in the moment of your sorrow. That is true. And we got to get there. But in the moment of your sorrow, that is not the counselor you need. Right? It's just not. Like you... you There needs to be room and space for sufferers to question. And God is not, he's not shy about that. God inspired every word of this book, which means that God could have edited it in any way he wanted and he could have just made this as as clean and whitewashed as it could be. But he he lets the, the cries of the confused come out and he puts this in the Bible for us. And so Jeremiah's crying out, look and consider to whom you've done this. Maybe you've asked that question as you've seen someone in your life suffer. God, do you understand how, how good that person is, how great they are? Why would you let them go through this? Or maybe it's even about yourself, right? The, again, this is where the passage ends. There's no real resolution. There's no resolution, and that's intentional. 
each of these poems really leave it kind of on a cliffhanger without re- resolve. But I think here's, here's where we got to see. We have to be careful not to overly personalize this because God had a very unique relationship to Israel. I think there are principles in here that I've tried to draw out a couple of those that are, that are for us, right? Like we can pray to the Lord in our times of sorrow. We should we should cry out to him. He hears us. He, the, the New Testament tells us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for you. That's true. We can pull that out of this text. We can talk about, like I just spent a few minutes doing, where you can be confused and you can be in a season of darkness and God is going to be able to carry you through that. Right? He carries us. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us in those things. We can, we can make all that personal application. And I don't think that's inherently wrong. But I think this passage and this book points us to a bigger picture, something even deeper, something deeper than just the suffering of, it, of Jerusalem in 687 BC. I think there's something grander going on here. And so rather than asking the question, how does this relate to me? I think that's the wrong question, right? Because the Bible's not about you. At, you know, we're in the Bible. Human beings are in the Bible, but ours, our part is not the good part, right? We kind of ruin everything. Hence lamentations, right? This was, this was human beings that, that led, this, led to this. We're not, the, we're not the point of the Bible, We're not the center of the Bible. Jesus is the center of the Bible. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing us to him. Everything in the New Testament is pointing back at him. Everything's about him. And uh, Tim Keller has some really helpful stuff on this. And one of the things he talks about is how Jesus is the true and better fill in the blank, right? Take something from the Old Testament and say, okay, Jesus actually is actually the fulfillment of that. And Tim Keller didn't invent that. That's from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews talks about how how the Old Testament things are a shadow of what will come in Christ. That Christ is the substance, the Old Testament is the shadow. That's that's foundationally where we're at. And I think we've got to ask the question, where does Jesus fit into this? How does Jesus fit into this? What is this pointing us to? And I think in a sense, I, without trying to spiritualize this or allegorize this, right, this is all true. It happened historically. It's a real thing. This is not just a fairy tale that we get to just allegorize and make like Jesus. But, but there is something that this destruction, the destruction of God's people in Jerusalem in 687, this destruction points us in the direction of a greater destruction, and that's the destruction of Jesus Christ for our sins. If you go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, where Isaiah is actually prophesying, towards the end of his, his life, he was prophesying about this very event, the event that has happened now. It was still a future thing for Isaiah. It, it was, uh, it's happening, or it's already happened now from the vantage point of lamentations. But Isaiah... In, in the context of talking about God's grand plan to save us, he brings us into this mindset that I think the point of Lamentations is to get us to, which is the, that God did.
did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If you look at verse 3 of 53, this is speaking of the servant of the Lord, who we know is Jesus. Isaiah is prophesying about him, and he says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but in return we regarded him stricken, smitten, uh, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep, Uh, is silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. He was taken away, right? The Babylonians brought people into captivity. Jesus was taken away because of our oppression, because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed. Jesus was killed, right, on the cross. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Now look at verse 10. This is absolutely crucial. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Some, the ESV says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So when we read something like Lamentations 2 and we go, how can God do this to his people? I think the real question we have to ask is, how could God have done this to his own son? The second member of the Trinitarian God, a God who entered into humanity to be crushed, to be killed, to suffer and die for sinners? That's the real question. It's not a hard leap. If we understand the doctrine of sin, it's not a hard leap to go, well, of course God killed sinners, right? Sinners deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. Like the, the amazing thing is that God doesn't just kill all of us all the time, right? That's the amazing thing. But what's shocking is that God would do this towards Jesus, that the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. That's the real heart of this. That God would make a way for sinners to be saved by being the condemnation for them. Yes, the people of Israel in the Old Testament were crushed. There's no getting around that. And it's hard to wrap our heads around that degree of human suffering. I get it. But let's just try to wrap our heads around the degree of suffering that the perfect Son of God, the second member of our triune God, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, would go through to suffer and die for us so that we would not be eternally cast out. I have no doubt that there's struggles with the, the, 
philosophy of suffering and how do we wrap our heads around a good God and why people suffer. I get it. Those are, those are deep questions. Those are questions that if you want to talk about them, I'd be glad to try and talk with you about them. Just come and let me, let me talk with you about that. I, I want to I recognize that. But the deeper thing here, the bigger thing to me is that Jesus Christ would do this for us so that we wouldn't die in our sins, so that we wouldn't be cast out forever, that we would actually be brought in. I think that's really the point. I I do, I think that's the point. That the, the things that the people of Israel endured historically and in their day are but a shadow of the substance that would be in Christ. The shadow really leads to the reality and the reality is that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That's Romans 8, if you were here when we were doing that, right? We talked through that. That's the gospel. That's the good news of grace. That, that it doesn't, doesn't diminish the fact that people still suffer and struggle in the world and those are hard things and we should give to those things the, the respect and, and confusion that they are due. At the same time, we should look to Jesus who is for us our condemnation so that we can be right with him. So with that said, let me pray for us and we'll go from there. Our Father in heaven, we, we stand just in awe uh, and amazement of you who was pleased to crush Jesus for us. And, and Lord, that's, that's a hard thing. <laughs> but I pray you would help our hearts to see it. I pray you would help us to see that in our suffering, because you were crushed for us, because you died for sinners, you never leave us abandoned and you never leave us alone and you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death and you are, you are, you are a good and gracious God who cares for our, our cares and you want us to cast those cares to you. So Lord, we we walk in this truth and balance. We trust that you would do in us what we need, that you would draw us to Christ first and foremost, and that you would help us to follow you even in the midst of our own sufferings, that we would follow close to you and know that you are the one who suffered and died for us, that you can identify with us in our weakness because you were made weak for us. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that work, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.